Hey, what's up, guys? It's Ben from United Q. It's Wednesday, which means we have another awesome podcast to get you over hump day. I'm here with my co-host, Dan. Hey. And we're brought to you by ProQ, Barbecue Gourmet, Kamado Joe, and Smokewood Shack, our awesome sponsors. ProQ is dedicated to providing you with quality smoking products with top-notch service and free advice for beginners to pitmasters. You can find them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under ProQ Smokers. So if you're thinking about buying your first smoker, wanting to upgrade or looking for charcoal cabinet smokers, then check them out over at Max Barbecue. And Barbecue Gourmet is devoted to promoting real barbecue and supplying the UK and Europe with top championship winning barbecue rubs, sauces, marinades and accessories from the United States and around the world. You can find them on Twitter and online under Barbecue Gourmet. So regardless of, of so regardless of how you cook, whether it's on charcoal, wood, gas or electric, the real taste of barbecue can be yours all year round. And Kamado Joe is renowned for build quality and innovation from smoking, roasting or searing. Kamado Joe is the premium ceramic grill chosen by Michelin star chefs and barbecue enthusiasts alike. Get that great barbecue taste and keep the moisture locked in. Check out kamadojoe.co.uk plus Facebook and Twitter. And on today's show, we've got Lewis Parks from Red Rock Brewery. Hi, Lewis. Are you all right? Hello, I'm fine. Are you all right? Yeah, good, thank you. Uh, it's good to have you on. We thought we uh, we wanted to talk to a brewery because obviously beer and barbecue goes together perfectly, and also we proved that recently by doing a barbecuey beer with you guys as well for our Q Fest festival. It's a nice collaboration brew, BQ. Yeah, brew BQ, baby. <laughs> so, so could you? We'll talk about that a bit later on. But if you could start off just by telling us a bit about your background, like how you got into brewing. Brewing. Well, I've always been a keen lover of beer um, as soon as I developed a taste for it at a young age. Um, the brewing kind of happened by mistake. I was formerly a trainee electrician. I lost uh, my position and um, I struggled to get another placement, but I did find work at a brewery. Um, not this brewery, obviously, another local brewery. Uh, took to it roll as well, enjoyed the job, enjoyed the, uh, the science and the, the processing involved in making beer. And with that, I did that for three years, um, and then Ted and I had a conversation about setting up a brewery. Um, he had the money, I had the knowledge, and then in 2006, we took delivery of our very own kit at a friend of ours, a farm, Joe Lang, and his dad, Jeff, and we set up a tiny little microbrewery, only a four-barrel length, and um, started producing just a couple of um, cast-conditioned real elves. Awesome. I remember the time when it all started up because you were converting like a, basically like a really old barn and everything, trying to modernise it a bit to be able to get your kit in there. So that was quite yeah, a big learning process. It wasn't just like moving to an existing brewery, was it? No, it was literally it was a, it was a room at the end of a barn, probably about the size of most people's living rooms. <laughs> and um, yeah, we uh, the floors, put the drainage in, uh, rendered the walls, and then like I say, took delivery of the kit after making some trial brews on a home brew kit, um, plumbed it all, and then we got the electrician into wiring all the, um, the pumps and the heating elements for the, the kit itself. And then, yeah, we did our first brew, sort of started around uh, August time, brewing the beer, and then we actually made our first sale on the 6th of September 2006, which started things off for us, really. And what was, what was the first, like, starting point of sales wise were you selling that to bars or were you just direct selling or uh yeah we were, we were going out um to pubs and um, we, we knew obviously with my 
my background in the trade and my dad's passion for drinking in pubs back in the day we um, we knew a few landlords that were quite happy to sort of give us a go um looking back the beer was probably a bit rough and ready them days but obviously as time's gone on our technology's improved um our processing's improved and our product we feel has improved considerably so before before you like got into this starting brewing and started working at the other brewery had you ever done any brewing before that had you like been a bit of a a homebrew king or anything, or not really? Not at all, no. no. Started the, the job at the other brewery got me into the whole process of making beer and learning about you know the temperatures involved, the different yeasts you can use, the different hot types, the different types of malt and barley, and different flavouring malts. Um, and yeah, when, when I, we were kind of given the opportunity to play with recipes, you know, I felt it was on a, on a homebrew here, that's how we started. Um, we developed two recipes based on an idea of what we wanted it to be like and came out with, well, Red Rock and Back Beach for the first two. So how, how close, how similar a product can you get, can you develop from a, so say you, you're doing your practices and you develop two recipes on your home brew kit, is, is it like literally exactly the same but just on a smaller scale? Do you, can you get, achieve, can you achieve like a a top brew quality sort of beer on these sort of home kits? Uh, you can if you sort of if you've got no, a, lot. a bit of knowledge yeah, about sort of I mean you can buy like a remote cooler and stuff like that which we didn't do back then because I, I didn't know as much as I thought I knew compared to what I know now but as far as scaling it up the, the original Red Rock recipe was it was really tasty I mean a lot of people liked it when we would like, sort of just fill in like a little poly container and we scaled it up you know sort of exactly to the four barrel size and it, it was horrible. It was just so bitter on the finish that it made it smell amazing. It looked amazing, <laughs> but it, it just left such a bitter, sort of almost tannin flavour in your mouth that it was almost undrinkable. Okay, so, so, so what was what was caused? Yeah, no. So it wasn't a direct. So, so what did you have to sort of change to to or what what was going wrong in that sort of change of process from the the home brew to the the big brew? Uh, we're not entirely sure. I mean, the quality of hops probably changed. The um, there's a thing that we use. It's called an alpha acid, which is in hops, which determines like how bitter the hop is. Um, and I'm not sure if I mean it was a long time ago. I can't remember. So I'm not sure if we accounted for that. But the way we sort of amended it was just to reduce the actual hopping in the copper, which is the bittering stage. Um, if you imagine you're brewing beer, you're extracting sugar, um, and then you boil the hops to bitter that down to sort of get that beer sweet balance, which is you know common in beers, hence why they're called bitters. Um, and then yeah, we a couple more trial brews on the bigger kit, and we we got it, you know, pretty much on the money. Um, it has obviously evolved over the eleven years we've been in business. Um, a few tweaks, you know, the kits changed, the uh, hop varieties either, you know, are become unavailable and stuff like that. That was all the sort of challenges we we had to deal with through developing our business. Yeah, um, that'd be a question, like a question of mine, really, is down to hops, obviously. The hops must play like quite a key key ingredient in the whole overall recipe, and they're not obviously they're a plant. They grow. Like the varieties are going to be similar, but I'm guessing they must change often. Like how do you how do you produce Red Rock beer and it be consistent? Because people need to know they like that beer and be able to buy it again, don't they? Well, nowadays because what we do is we enter into the contracts every year, so we get we basically pre-book all of our hops for the year. Um, and then that guarantees that we're going to get that supply of hops. And then if if we get 
option to buy it all out or we just sort of cancel back some of it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, there, there was a few problems with hops. I mean, we used to, when we started our resources to use just barley and um, British hops. And we used a type of hop called a Bramling Cross, but it's, it's a funny one. It needs like a frost to like a rhubarb, but it's, it's dormant and then it grows better. And because of, we had really bad weather, the Bramling Cross became so rare that it obviously the price went through the roof mm. so then we were forced to blend um two hot varieties to try and get a similar flavor um but sometimes it works out for the best i mean like our our lager product that we've been doing recently um the pilsner that we ran out of a hop for that which was unavailable and we got this new sort of prototype hop which is called cardinal now but it just had a series of numbers and that's actually got like a citrusy pineapple flavour to it. So, you know, you we put that in, and it, it's almost given it a slight edge on flavour. It's almost improved it. So it's not always a bad thing when you're forced to change your hop varieties. But you know, it's, it's got to be a pretty discerning palate to to really recognise yeah. that that product's changed. Yeah. So you can yeah. get them; they're like similar enough that that you yeah. to the untrained tongue, you can't tell. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, we, we we struggle to tell ourselves when we change the hop. I mean, you have to really sort of analyse analyse it. And then, um, I don't know about you guys, but if I start analysing beer too much, I stop enjoying it and I just start questioning it. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And what is is uh, is tasting beer like a key part of the process? Is that like, is, do you need to it's taste it. every batch that you produce or are you just at a stage yeah. now we just know it's going to taste all right? Well, we taste it anyway. I mean, it's, it's it's good practice to always taste your products, even after they've been in packaging for a while, just to make sure that the quality maintains itself. But, you know, it's, it's obviously a tough job tasting all this beer. Yeah, I was going to say, imagine, if you need any like, other employees in that area, we can probably <laughs> help you out with that. <laughs> well, it's funny enough, actually, we're, we're going to put together a tasting panel to help with our quality control. So maybe you guys yep, could... Yeah, go on it, yep. Ben's got a really bad palate, I thought I'd let you know now. Uh, I wouldn't trust <laughs> what as long as you like wet, it. Like That's it. why he thinks his food tastes good. It's really weird. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So, and when and when you're try when you're ch- testing out like new beers and trying new things, like I'm guessing scale wise is important at that stage as well. Like, are you going to produce masses of a beer that you're just testing out a recipe, or do you almost revert back to the homebrew style to brew up a small batch to try out a new recipe? No. I mean, if I was going to do something really sort of and I'd probably try it on a really small scale, but nothing. I've, I've actually come to the point where I wanted to do something that wacky yet. Um, generally, like with your Bruby Q that we collaborated on, yeah. it, it was a 600 litre batch that we did, um, which is it's quite easy to produce. And then you know you put it into bottles in a few containers, and pretty much you're guaranteed to sell it because you know there's always going to be someone that likes the beer. And it's quite hard with that one though. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> No, it's very well, popular. You know, <laughs> when, when you've been doing it for as long as we have here now, I mean, you, you kind of know. I mean, it's like a baker making bread. You know, he, he's, as soon as he's got the backbone of recipes, I suppose you guys doing your smoke food, you know the science involved to get good results. And then once you know that with that basic pattern, you can start sort of playing with recipes with different flavors, flavors that might not go, but you make them work. If you know what I mean, it's it's that skill in practicing and. You know, producing a consistent product that gives you the the confidence, I suppose, to sort of branch out and think, well, I can produce this. I kind of know 
how to achieve the flavour I want. Then you do it, and then when, luckily for us, nine times out of ten, the results are as we want them. Yeah, I'm trying to get Dan to work on his recipes so that he's got like, a bit more consistency because he's pretty off. Probably like one in ten he can get it right normally. <laughs> <laughs> I've just re I've just reenacted all of his hand signals. He was just pointing at me. I just translated those into words and reversed them onto him. So <laughs> <laughs> Everything you were saying, I was like pointing at him. He's the one out of ten that, that gets it wrong. But anyway, um, so you got you got to make some mistakes to. He's just not learned yet, though. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> so, but what's the when you you look at all different types of ale? There's so many different ales out there, and like the craft craft ale boom is like <laughs> among us now. Like every everywhere you look, there's craft beers here, there, and everywhere. And there's yeah. some really awesome ones and some just okay ones, but. But like how when you're like going into this world of like coming up with a new craft ale, like what what makes them different from each other? Is it just the hops, or is there more to it than that? Well, there's there's oodles of variables. I mean, if we're getting really scientific, I mean, there's there's different types of um, barley. I mean, the base is always the same. You use basically a pale malt to get your sugar extract, your sugar content. You can add in crystal malt. Um, blacker malts, if you're going for darker beers, roasted barleys, um, uh, coffee, uh, chocolate barleys, some stuff like that. And you can go into wheat, torrefied wheat, uh, caramel. There's, there's loads of different variations, different types of pale malt as well. Like we use one called Munich, which gives like a redder profile for our red ale. Um, and then, yeah, now your water is another ingredient. Um, obviously, if your water's hard or soft, and you can add stuff in to make your water softer. Um, you strike temperatures, when you strike your mash, the higher the temperature, the, the more sweeter, well, it basically leaves, less, um, leaves more non-fermentable sugars behind, um, which will give you a sweeter palate because they can't ferment, so they stay as sugar. And then if you do it a bit lower, you'll get a more of a bitter flavour. And then there's your hop varieties, um, how many hops you add in at the boil to, to determine the bitterness how many you add in at the end, and then there's the maturation period, if you add in additional flavourings, um, if you add in extra hops, and then other people, that, I mean, a lot of these craft brewers are putting all sorts in beer now. I mean, you can put in, like, lemongrass, you can put in herbs, you can put in some people, when they make Christmas beers, put in actual Christmas pudding into their mash tun. So there's so many variations that you can do to a beer. Okay, cool. So you can get flavours from... Uh, from hops and stuff, but and you can barley. also from the yeah. from the barley, but you can also then add in sort of real flavors later on in the process then yeah. as well. Because that's what I was going to say. Like as you were reeling off off all these like a caramel barley, like what, maybe a coffee or whatever, the, all the different ones. I was going to say. So is that where they get them from? When you see like a beer that says banana bread beer, like is that have they put some real banana bread in it, or is it just it reminds you of banana bread? Like what is there well, banana bread in it? Chances are they they probably put a banana bread in. Um, I mean, a, a, banana, a banana bread beer is actually a wheat beer. And if you try any sort of German Weiss beer on the market, um, you can almost, if you taste it, because they're quite sweet beers, if you if you think about it, think about bananas when you're tasting it, it does actually, you can get that sort of banana flavor through naturally. So I suppose if they are adding banana bread in, or even a, a banana extract, it's almost just, echoing that natural flavour that we would carry. Mm -hmm. 
you, so, you said, I think at one point you said to add it into the mash. Did you say yeah, that? the mash. What's the mash? The mash is basically, that's, that's the start of the brewing process. So here at Red Rock, we, we come in at 7.30 in the morning. Um, we circulate our hot liquor tank to bring it to the temperature we want to add into our mash tun, which is basically like a big uh, teapot. And we just put in water. And then as we're flooding in the water, we add grain. Um, which is mainly barley, but like I said sometimes we could put any of those flavourings which I just mentioned with it, but in small percentages, you know, to either change the taste, the colour profile, or add sweetness, whatever. Um, and that just gets mashed in um, until all the grain's gone in and mixed with water. So basically it's like a big sludgy porridge at this point. And then we just mix it around a bit, obviously not too much because we don't want to start extracting the starch enzymes. And then um, we just put a lid on and forget about it for an hour and a half. And then when you come back to it, you start extracting what we call it the wort, which is basically just a sugar solution. Um, and then you, we sparge the top of the sparge arm. So it, we're adding water on the top of it. It's basically running through the grains, picking out these sugars. And then it goes into our underback and then pumped into our copper to get boiled up. And when we reach the volume we need in the copper, which is like a big kettle, basically, mm-hmm. um, we bring into the ball and then we pitch in our hops. So the wort's basically the sweet solution. The hops go into the wort. They bitter during the boil. Um, that that balances that sweet solution to give that bit of sweet flavour. And then we boil that for an hour, an hour and a half. Depends what brews are different. And then um, we add in aroma hops, uh, which you know they don't have any heat added to them. They just go into the hot liquor, the hot wort. And then they'll steep for 40 minutes. We do it for, but you can do it until well, what brewers used to do. They used to call it a hop break. But it's until basically that all the hops become saturated and they sink, mm-hmm. and it clears. Basically, the, the wort's clear, and then we pump it through a heat exchanger to bring the temperature back down to 20 degrees. Um, and then it goes into our vats. And then when we fill the vats about halfway, we pitch in. Um, we use a, a wet yeast brewer's yeast. Um, and then once that yeast touches that wort, that's when it becomes beer. And then once that's, you know, the, the fermenting vessels come up to volume with all the wort, um, it, then it will start to ferment. And after about three to seven days, all the sugars will ferment, turn into ethanol enzymes, which is alcohol. And then once it's ready, we put it on the chiller. And then it goes into, well, through a series of processes that either goes into cask-conditioned beer where it gets put into IBCs, uh, storage tanks, and then it's matured for either bottling or kegging. And if we're doing crafty stuff, we, we, we add in either blackberries, elderflower, or hops, or smoked hops, in your case. You do. <laughs> <laughs> and what, at what point do you, are you, like, controlling how... What like the alcohol content, so like the proof of what we are drinking, like do you know like before you start, or is it like there's a part of that process that you just describe where it's like if we leave this longer, it's gonna be eight percent beer instead of five percent beer or? no because there's only there's only so much sugar that can turn into alcohol, um basically, what we do is we calibrate our beers, um obviously we've been doing it long enough now that we know it pretty much to the nearest hundred liters how much we're going to be extracting to make, to get the, we call it gravity or original gravity. You ever see OG written on a beer bottle? So that's what it is. And all it is is the gravity is basically the measurement of sugar in solution. 
and we ferment those sugars out. So when we, we basically use a hydrometer, so when it ferments down, we turn those sugars into alcohol and then we take measurements. And we, when we get down to our a specific gravity, we then we put the chiller on it. And like I said, we let it, let it go cold because then that stops any yeast working because we want a bit of residual sugar there because when it, when it goes into either the cast beer or into the maturation tanks, you want like a secondary fermentation or a condition which is what we call conditioning, which it, it gets rid of that excess um, sugar. The byproducts carbon dioxide, so it gives it that, you know, you cast conditioned beers on the hand pool, it's a nice foamy head. And also in the bottling process, that maturation period, you know, it, it helps to sort of rid the beer of what could potentially lead to off flavours or souring, because that residual CO2 will move any oxygen out of the product. So... The, the stronger, like you talk, uh, let's just pull a figure out, like a 6.5% beer. So that, that would start with a higher sugar content in, originally. Exactly. So yeah, then they exactly. can actually, okay, cool. And they would go down, well, they could stop whenever they wanted to on the on the sugar levels. But if they went right down, then that would be a very strong beer. Then if they started off with a high sugar content and took most of it out, you'd end up with yeah. a very high percentage alcohol level. Yeah, okay. that's it. Yeah, the, the more sugar you've got in there to start. So if you extract a, a higher concentration from the mash tun, um, and then you ferment that down, you're going to let be left with more alcohol in the product. Cool. Yeah, and I guess it makes sense because like, I've I've drunk a few ales at like beer festivals that will be like a nine percent ale or something, and they're usually like so sweet to drink. It's like I always say it's like drinking like syrup or something because they are like I find when I'm drinking an ale that's high percentage of alcohol, it actually is very sweet as well is that right yeah that's it yeah because there's, there's a lot of sugar hmm. interesting yeah. it's awesome. it is. so much to it. is that is the high you say a hydrometer for measuring that, yeah hydrometer is, is that we, like we've what got my mum would have had like to float in her wine when she was trying to work out how strong it was or not <laughs> yeah I mean there's, there's probably a more technical version of it than that <laughs> um, you can use these re- <laughs> refractometers which they use um, light to measure the bricks, which is a bit more of a technical way to do it, but because we're a small operation, we've, we're allowed a 0.5% variable, um, but when we've sent our beer off to be tested, um, they usually come back pretty accurate, so we're, we're, we're pretty confident we're getting it right. Mm. <coughs> I don't know if you do, I've been, went to an, like, another brewery on a brewery tour a while ago, and I'm sure at some point, I don't know if I just drank too many beers, but I'm sure at some point they told us that they put something like fish related into it like i don't know what it was but i'm sure there was, there was a point where they're like we put all this like dead fish in it now something to clear it is that yeah. did i dream that or not <laughs> no no it's it's um basically we use two types of well we use three types i mean some breweries don't now because they, they go for this purity thing so that you have sometimes when you get like a hazy beer but they say oh we don't find our beer okay but um yeah, what we use, basically we use a copper finding, which is derived from like that Kerrigan, that sort of vegan gelatin or Irish moth. Mm. And it's like a tablet that we drop into our copper, and that basically flocculates and uh, coagulates all the proteins. So they become, they all stick together and they sink down to the bed. Um, then when our beers are finished fermenting, we put in, once they're cold, we put in a, a finings adjunct, which is, which is basically a primary finings. And that 
it just helps to grab any residual proteins and yeast and it just drops them to the bottom of your fermenting vessel. Um, and then when it goes into cast beer, we add in, well, Eisenklaus or, or Clear Sea, which is derived from, yeah, fish waste, from the, the swim bladders of fish, basically. And that just works with this, the primary findings, and that's what gives you that really bright pint of real ale in the bar. Mm. Um, but that said, with all of our bottle products and keg products for cast, we don't add that because it it ruins my filters, and it's not necessary because <laughs> if, you, if you're filtering it out, it, it, it doesn't matter. And with the fish guts being uh, sort of a, a natural coagulant, it, it just bunches together and it blocks your filters, mm-hmm. and they ain't cheap, so you don't want to be buggering them up. Your filters. <laughs> I always yeah, love stuff like that. I always think, who is the first person to actually do that and yeah. just go, okay, I'm going to give this a go? And chuck some fish guts in there. Oh, Lord knows. I mean, they used to use animal products all sorts. They used to use, what, horse, horse something for making glue. Yeah, yeah. So they, I think they just used to use anything in the olden days, and if it worked, they just stuck with it. Yeah. So if you use if you use that, does it mean that you can't say that your beer is, like, vegan beer or vegeta- vegetarian beer? Can you say that? If yeah. If fish the, in the, it. The car, all of our cast beer is, is not suitable for vegans. Um, but all of my bottles and uh, keg beer is because, like I say, we don't add any animal products. No animals are harmed in the making of those beers. <laughs> we can hear the sheep in the background as well, so sheep are fine. <laughs> yeah, they're all right. That's a bean sorted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Use the sheep's wool as a filter or not? I've <laughs> uh, not heard of it, but they, they, they're quite good at various other applications, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, that's good, yeah. Um, I don't have a good question then. It's gone. I doubt it. Uh, yeah, I did. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh, gone blank. Oh, that's good. Oh, there's gonna be fish. Was it fish? We've done the fish one. Oh well. I don't know. I'm I'm sort of. It's awesome. There's You've so much science in it, and it's like far beyond like my. I've done I've done a couple of home brews. Like I did, I did a wheat beer at home. Bought like a kit where pretty much all I had to do is add water and sugar I think that was about all I had to do and at yeah. a certain point it like brewed in a bucket for a couple of weeks and then I bottled it and I did like half my bottles I didn't add any sugar to them at all but I, the other half I like put a teaspoon of sugar or half a teaspoon of sugar in the bottle with it and it was yeah. like one would be fizzy and one wouldn't but yeah, all the ones I added sugar to pretty much exploded <laughs> yeah well what you're doing is you're adding in sugar which, um, because there's still yeast in that product, that yeast so will eat that sugar. Mm. And it will, the waste product from that sugar being eaten by the yeast is carbon dioxide. So oh. that's obviously staying in your product. Yeah. And I had some in the, left in the garage for a couple of years and I opened them the other day and they're firing the lids off right across the whole garden. So it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it can be pretty dangerous. Yeah. I've heard some horror <laughs> stories about when they just They've heard them going off in the night, and then they come down in the morning, and there's shards of glass stuck in the walls. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> do do, do approach with caution. Yeah. I've remembered what I was going to ask you now about what recently I've seen. It'll be really rubbish now. This is, it's not built, rubbish. Built it right it's up. good. It's going to be really rubbish. Come my, on then. Yeah. What's your great question? Yeah. Well, my, my wife has oh, recently we don't talk had, about to, had to opt for the gluten-free uh, diet so yes. we've tried quite a few gluten-free beers, and I just wondered, like, something like the other day I had a gluten-free Peroni. Like, what? 
how, how can it make like how can peroni taste it look tasted the same as other peroni so if it tastes the same as other peroni why not just make all peroni gluten-free and not bother having a gluten-free option like what are they doing differently to make peroni gluten-free you know um they're having their balls chopped off there's no swearing. That's no swearing. <laughs> They're balls. You can. Uh, pl- we played dodgeball earlier. Yeah. Ball, that's one of the uh, big yes, balls. Yes, yes. Uh, Dan has two dodgeballs um. in front of him. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh dear. Um, I don't know how Peroni do it. I mean, yeah, not Peroni specifically, I guess. So it's like, how can you make a gluten-free you, beer? You, you do you want to make one? <laughs> yeah, you that don't have gluten in, and rice is a good one. Yeah. Rice is a good... Uh, so can you make a rice beer, then? You can make a rice beer. Estrella's a rice beer. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Oh. And some of the, some of those Japanese lagers are made using rice as well. Oh, cool. I think rice wine, that's a thing. Yeah, it? rice wine, that's yeah. sake. Hmm. Sake, yeah. Well, you don't want to drink too many of them, though. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, glu- so it is, it's just looking for alternative grains, basically. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I looked on the back of a certain big branded dog brewery um they do a gluten-free and that contains rice malt mm. but it also contains caramel so i i mean i know i know the caramel we use mm. and we used in your brew bq recipe yeah is it comes from barley so i don't know whether the process in the way they create the cara by basically baking it for a while mm. uh, whether that would eliminate any of the gluten within yeah, it, it or whether it's a certain amount like so many parts per million in the product of gluten is allowed whether or it's if you expose them it. as a fake yeah, yeah so <laughs> Trade I like standards. I luckily they're listening to our podcast <laughs> are they <laughs> <laughs> damn it <laughs> oh, very interesting yeah, very interesting interesting uh, but, but I did I was interested to like see how like a beer can taste that similar and having to like they say if you replaced barley with rice like those are very well, different flavor profiles so does the barley not honest. have that much influence on its flavor do you think well it, it, it depends doesn't it i mean any sort of camera member would want to sort of see that balance in beer whereas the new younger craft beers drinkers they like it, the extreme flavors either end they can either be really rich and malty or it can be so hoppy that you can't you lose all sense of where the malt is mm. yeah, but I mean with a, with a corporate brand <laughs> like Peroni mm. I mean I'm imagining they you know their beer isn't amazing let's be honest <laughs> um, so to achieve a gluten free version of the same thing I, I can't imagine was that challenging for, the, <laughs> for them <laughs> I only picked it because it was the only gluten free beer that they had that's all I've ever seen him drink he makes himself <laughs> out to be this ale drinker all he drinks is Peroni <laughs> Uh, I can give you a list of gluten-free beers. Cool. Don't, don't do I've that. already mentioned a few on air. Yeah. No, I've I've tried the um, dog variety as well. That one. Was yes. And it does. Like, again, they taste very similar to uh, their other beers. So I just think it's interesting that if it can taste that similar, and I know, just because I'm in the gluten-free world at the moment and I'm paying attention to it, but I just think like, why can't more things just be gluten-free and then we wouldn't have to worry about this hassle all the time wherever we go for dinner <laughs> no one else yeah. has to worry about it though it's me just you. said me i'm just yeah. i'm well, happy with my gluten loads of gluten in my beer please 
Make sure yeah. there's lots nah. of gluten in it. But you don't need it to hold it together, do you? I don't That's care. Like I like got it. A structure and nah, nah, don't go messing with my beer. You places. have your vegan gluten-free beer, and I'll have vegan <laughs> beer. You can have your fish beer with you. Yeah, I love fish guts. Don't worry. <laughs> Happy. It's fine. It's only in real areas, anyway. Yeah. Which is my favorite. Yeah, if, 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 you, if you're actually actively shopping for gluten-free beers, um, not all of them advertise themselves very well, because, like, like I said, the ones that come from Japan... Japanese lagers, they're, they're generally made with the rice malt, which is gluten-free, and um, they probably don't advertise it because I don't imagine the gluten's a heavy player in their diets anyway. Mm. Yeah. So just, just check the back. I mean, it's, it's always worth reading the ingredients, and then mm. if the, the main base is, like, Estrello's are gluten-free because it's made from rice as well, so... Yeah, I didn't know that, because you drink that quite often, didn't you? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, mm, cool. Sort of. Well, not that often. Not that I've often. seen you drink it before. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> once. I've tasted it a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Right, well, we've, we've already gone over our time because it's been so interesting chatting to you. I've got more things to talk about, so maybe we'll schedule another one in the future where we can talk about your whole other world where you're actually a chef as well and you probably have got yeah, some cool. awesome cooking recipes that you use your beers in as well, so I reckon that could follow up one day with another episode as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's generally a French influence with a bit of English twist, so I'm not, I'm not the, I've not delved much into the barbecue world. To be honest, we can change that. We can, yeah, we can uh, influence. That's right. I'm always keen to learn. Cool. I'm, I'm keen, especially after seeing the setup up here on uh, your Q Fest. Yeah, it was something. And the smells. Smell good. Smelled. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, could you, if you could just tell everyone where they can find you guys on like your website, social media, and stuff like that. Yeah, we're on social media, uh, Twitter, Redbrook Brewery 1, uh, Instagram, Redbrook Brewery UK, our website's uh, redbrookbrewery.co.uk, um, and we're based in Bishop Staten in sleepy South Devon. Awesome. Thanks very much, Lewis. Thanks for spending yeah. some time for us. That's yeah, thank you very much, bro. Cheers, Thanks, guys. Thanks for, thanks for involving me. No worries. No worries. Chat soon. Cheers. All right, take care. Cheers, man. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in, guys. We've recorded yet another awesome podcast to get you over hump day. As always, we're brought to you by ProQ, Barbecue Gourmet, Kamado Joe, and Smokewood Shack, our awesome sponsors. ProQ is dedicated to providing you with quality smoking products with top-notch service and free advice for beginners to pitmasters. You can find them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under ProQ Smokers. So if you think about buying your first smoker, wanting to upgrade, or looking for charcoal cabinet smokers, then check them out over at Max Barbecue. And Barbecue Gourmet is devoted to promoting real barbecue and supplying the UK and Europe with top championship winning barbecue rubs, sauces, marinades and accessories from the United States and around the world. You can find them on Twitter and online under Barbecue Gourmet. So regardless of how you cook, whether it's on charcoal, wood, gas or electric, the real taste of barbecue can be yours all year round. Kamada Joe is renowned for build quality and innovation from smoking, roasting or searing. Kamada Joe is the premium ceramic grill chosen by Michelin slash chefs and barbecue enthusiasts alike. Get that great barbecue taste and keep the moisture locked in. Check out kamadojoe.co.uk plus Facebook and Twitter. And finally, Smokewood Shack delivers quality smoking wood every time. They provide the smoky goodness, you provide the talent. So if you're looking for smoking wood chunks, dust, chips or planks, head on over to smokewoodshack.com and you can find them on Twitter under Smokewood Shack and also Instagram as well now. And goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. I'm not as good a cook and as goodbye Gordon. from me, the best barbecue cook Rubbish. out of the two Rubbish. United Q guys.